Welcome to another crossover episode with Writing with Machines, a rad group of English teachers who get together to discuss technology, teaching, and composition. In this Writing with Machines conversation, my colleagues and I discuss the writer's voice, writing techniques, and writing materials that are encoded with values. In other words, we ask the question, what is it that shapes human expression? To see more from this and other Writing with Machines discussions, check out the show notes or search Writing with Machines as one single word. Thanks for listening. Okay, so today we want to explore these new generative AI tools, but with regards to um, concepts of voice, concepts of bias, and concepts of, I'm using the word template, but by template I'm meaning like reproducible structures, right? Or, Or devices or tools that structure our thinking for us or with us. Um, and, and so we can kind of dig into it and, and, and uh, explore those things. I had, I had suggested in my um, uh, announcement for this particular workshop that we could riff on the documentary Coded Bias, and we could also riff on um, Stephen Marsh's um, article in which he's using an algorithm to help him write science fiction. And it's a really interesting article in Wired because he's both giving the science fiction story but he's annotating it to show like where the AI was helping him or where he was trying to resist it. And then he also kind of frames it with this narrative of what he did and why he did it. And then there's these two reviews at the bottom that clearly show that it's not a very good story. (laughs) So, (laughs) so um, I don't really, so I wonder, and again, there was no pressure to read or watch either of these things, but I just want to create space in case anybody did and you have any thoughts. Maybe first we could talk about the the documentary. Did anybody get a chance to watch the documentary and do you have any thoughts about it? I'll I'll jump in because I I didn't, I watched a little bit of it this morning, Um, just a little, kind of like I did last time, just the beginning. But one thing that really struck me was how... The, the person who was interviewing at the beginning was very much like a lot of our students in this, oh, I went into computer science so that I could get out of like real world problems and sort of avoid those. Um, and this like slippage between the like what is like truth and then the like sheet layer of like problems that we create for ourselves and trying to escape that, that was interesting to me. And yeah. juxtaposed with the assignment where, it, and the camera, of course, all the camera cutting and, and zooming into the comics and like that, like interface between those two forms of expression. I was trying to escape, but like she clearly also had this huge interest in comics, which is all about politics and all about those things. And so I found that interesting as the framing device because it's where a lot of our students come from um, and why a lot of our students might feel uh, comforted by something like ChatGPT because it, it technically does that. It creates this idea that the writing is like objective and like a pure product um, when that's often like what they're saying, although it doesn't end up being that way, what, what they're saying as to why they're in math or science or whatever that be. Nice. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm jotting, I'm jotting down these ideas and maybe, maybe we'll loop back to them. Uh, thank you, Daniel. Anybody else? Uh, again, there was no pressure to watch this. I'm just creating some space so we can fill that space with silence. Or if you have some thoughts, we can we can go there too.
Cool. <laughs> so one of the things, and I'll just give a very quick synopsis, not to dwell here too long, but maybe just to promote it because it's a really, really good documentary. Um, it follows a, uh, a data scientist. Her name is uh, Joy Bulimwini. And um, um, really the kind of initi- the initial um, problem that, that kicks off her research is she's trying to create a program that will track her face and then map onto her face some kind of heroic persona, like Serena Williams or a comic book character, something. She calls it her, like, uh, um, I forget the exact name she says, but it's like an encouragement mirror, right? So she looks at her computer, it maps onto her face some kind of hero and it like motivates her for the day, but it won't track her face. Um, she's a black woman and she, she notices that if she picks up a, a, a white mask, it will tra- track her face. And so this begins her research. Um, and uh, what's really interesting about this documentary is it brings in other data scientists, other folks talking about AI. There's some really good definitions of AI. So kind of contrasting like general AI with narrow AI, which is we could go there if we want to. Um, but, but part of what this documentary really unearths is, is to Daniel's point, like, like Matt, like a lot of folks that are in this documentary talk about going into mathematics because it feels really clean. Like it's free of bias. It's this like way of seeing the world that it sort of strips away that, that crude human emotional sort of thing that skews everything, but it's just not true. Like one of the one of the 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 clear like thesis statements of the documentary is that we encode our values, our goals, and our prejudices into the things we make, and it doesn't matter what those things are. They could be mathematical models, they could be essays we write for English classes, um, and so our bias is in these tools that we then use to build other things. Um, so I think that that's just a really interesting frame for thinking about writing in general, right? Um, we definitely could go to, to these generative AI tools to talk about, but but we could also talk about other things like, you know, um, the templates we've always used in English one, in English classes to help our students write. Like, what are the biases? What are the values that are embedded in those templates? Um, I don't know. Does, it, does that make anybody think about anything? Anybody want to jump in there? Uh, you know, it, uh, that makes perfect sense when I think about it. Um, and especially if we're thinking of these uh, technologies that are using the internet to resource its information, well, the internet's full of our biases. That's clear. Yeah. That makes sense to me. So when we have something like to continue talking about chat GPT that simply uses <laughs> the internet that's available to it to, to come up with its ideas and its answers, well, then, yeah, it's going to reflect precisely those biases that we've so thoroughly instilled into our own internet. No, I, I like that. I really, I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, right on. Looks like Jake's trying to unmute. I could tell. <laughs> so and uh, when, when those biases become hardwired into the things that are designed, is it a reflection of the greater cultural um, values, or is it more in line with like the designer, him or her, or their selves values? Like, is there, do they, is it, there, is there a distinction? Like, maybe if they're not in alignment, does, do they see that 
the designers' biases come out in the, in the structures that they design, or is it just more or less a reflection of the larger institutional values or something? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And so I'll, I'll pivot to the documentary real quick, and then we'll pivot back to talk about, about writing. Um, one of the, so one of the things that Joy Bulimwini, the data scientist uh, uh, in this documentary, like discovers in her research is that the folks who created these face recognition software programs are white men primarily. And the internet image scoops that they did to train these AI were primarily white faces. And so you have there just this, right, this built-in bias because of basically a blind spot. You know, it's just folks building this are just using their own faces and then they're using the internet and they're thinking they're capturing everybody not and, and they're not, right? And so it's a lack of awareness, a lack of self-reflection. Halfway through the documentary after uh, uh, Bulimwini shares this um, with like IBM, like suddenly the, the, the abilities of this AI to detect many faces changes and it becomes much greater for different, gram different, gram different demographic groups because they're suddenly aware of this problem. So, um, so, so, so let me, let me then link this back to writing real quick. Uh, and I wonder what we think about this. I think about what my students ask in class. Are we allowed to use I in our essays in this class? And to me, that makes me think about a training that they've received, that there's been a preference in the kinds of forms of writing they, they've been asked to do in the past that has asked them to do one thing with their like analytic thinking and do another thing with their you know, their kind of gut or their, their, how they feel about something or how they would tell a story about something. Right. And so, and they've been trained when you write in an English class, hold this back, but privilege this stuff. And that's really in the structure of the essay, right. That how they've been trained to write and, and sort of form these things, the template of it. Right. And I think clearly there, there's a bias, there's a value set on one kind of thinking and, or one kind of knowing and sharing and not another kind of knowing and sharing. Does that make sense? That, um, I, I like that. And I think that that's interesting um, because that gets to the layers too of not only like what they, they've learned, but like the authorship that they, like their expectations too as audiences. And this is kind of a tangent, but it kind of, it kind of relates to these things but um uh and i think it's it's an interesting connection to make in uh beginning to watch that documentary this morning i and uh, this is an advocate for the for this game again i couldn't stop thinking about detroit become human um for various reasons one that like ai voice it was funny that ai voice at the beginning of the documentary that sounds like an ai voice but then you play yeah. detroit become human and has the ai at the beginning that just seems like a perfect human yeah. um and i it, it jarred me into to thinking those distinctions because like there was no reason that AI in the documentary had to sound so robotic because we're past that. Um, so it's interesting that that was, is sort of the choice. But I was also thinking, like one of the interesting things that happens with Detroit Become Human, and I think this relates both to like cultural perception, but also writing, is the androids technically are just white faces in that game. But um, because of the comfort level of humans, race and gender and other attributes are ascribed to them. So the androids could technically, when they gain sentience, they can just turn their faces white again. And um, I, it just 
that's like now I'm thinking a lot about that like layer of objectivity versus subjectivity and like comfort level of the people create like of the creator basically of something and how those ideologies filter into it and in terms of writing like in that that too that's why I like teaching that game because the creator of that game is a white dude with tons of problems about race and gen with race and gender um and then he's trying to write a game a very narrative-based game that's really trying to make these like civil rights and feminist arguments about race and gender when he as a right like as a right as a as the writer like in control of a studio is uh himself ideologically like maladroit at that and that's interesting too because students like that makes me think of like students coming at things from particular ideological perspectives that like are maybe expressive and earnest but yes. also not totally informed uh, in those ways too um and so just lots of interesting layers of like how the body is written and how our ideologies filter into that and then how we as an author at at a top level are like uh, uh controlling all of that messaging too yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. I like so so. I think this is worth thinking about. So, and 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 I want to broaden the the the. Are thinking about it too? Like, because I well, so how have we ever in an English class encountered writing tools, writing templates, prompts, rubrics, uh, these kinds of things that do really invite? our students' ideological perspectives in a way that allows them to exercise their voice and also grow as their writing is, is sort of engaged with by the audiences in the classroom, right? Like a really cool generative um, uh, uh, assignment or way of scaffolding where, where our students themselves recognize their own voice, their own agency, and also that kind of responsiveness to the folks they're trying to share their ideas with a, 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 a desire to clarify on their own terms, this or that. Right. Um, or opposed to that, are there things we can think of that were a little, that we know for sure, like, no, no, this was meant to constrain students, ideological perspectives or constrain voice for whatever reason, right. To train them in logic or to sort of introduce them to structures Um and, and, you know, so I wonder if we could just go there a little bit with some salient examples, like, and I can, I can share one really quickly. I know at uh, Cal State San Marcos, where Jake and I taught for a while, one of the phrases that was in our rubrics for a long time, even when we rewrote them, was this uh, phrase of uh, intellectual risk. And it was like, for me, it was both really hard to assess, like, I don't really know what intellectual risk looks like. <laughs> like, it was, it was hard to point to it and say, that's what this is doing. But it also, in my mind, like it helped me as as the assessor, like I'm not just making them conform because I have this phrase in my rubric. I have a lot of issues with that, but but that was like, a, I don't know, that, that for me, that was a salient marker of we're trying to do something to honor students' voices and ideological perspectives. We didn't quite do it perfectly. Um, but I wonder what other things come to mind in that if we kind of set that that scale. Also, that might be a confusing question, so I'm happy to clarify. If... 
I think one of the most obvious ones that constrains the student voice, but is understandable in why it's taught is like the five paragraph essay that so many people come to class with. Yeah. That, I mean, I don't know how much it ideologically restrains the, the student, but it definitely gets them to think in three parts that then they have to fill and it limits the argument to where maybe there's some kind of like it's point A, point B, point C. Yep. And they try and jam, you know, a hundred nuanced concept claims inside of point A, which constitutes like a, that which results in like a two and a half page paragraph. Yeah. To, totally. Go ahead. Yeah. That, so that's one that I immediately thought of. Yep. Yeah. I would throw out there the axis paragraph or test or any other kind of formula we have for paragraph structure. Um, it's constraining our thinking to this sort of logical move of idea to supporting example to some kind of unpacking or concluding sort of statement of that example that then tends to like gesture towards either the thesis it's supporting or towards the next paragraph it's transitioning towards, right? And that can be very formulaic. You know, I, uh, I had a student I was just chatting with. Um, I really, I push um, working on papers, you know, in a piecemeal fashion. So brainstorming, coming up with an outline, submitting that outline and talking about that outline, then moving that outline to the rough draft. Uh, I have a lot of students that absolutely hate <laughs> having to create an outline and then moving it into a rough draft. Yeah. They, they absolutely just, it doesn't, doesn't work with the way that they, uh, the way that they write or the way that they perceive themselves as writers. Um, so there's a lot of conflict that I see even in the, the writing process as I, as I set it up as a constraint in my classroom. Right. Yeah, same. I have students that really resist some steps in the writing process, and, and that's interesting. That's interesting because I was going to bring up to, um, I've, I think I've mentioned it before, but the like visual and digital project I do and how students bring those templates to that. And then it's this, if we're writing an essay in like specific Padlet pieces or Google Slides pieces or something, that template doesn't work. And then I, and it's funny because I always think that in terms of process, it's a little bit freeing because you don't have to worry about those things. And then, like I, I've said before, I, then you can say, well, what if an essay allows the reader to like write in your essay because these tools can do it. And that like, that I see that as a freeing thing, but that's like a constraint in that situation. And it goes back uh, a couple weeks ago, I think I was talking about control and students like fearing losing the control that they assume that writing is supposed to have, that it's a controlled thesis and that it's your individual original idea, even though that something like that, I think is a template that they often struggle with too, that they're, they're producing some sort of new knowledge um, uh, in like a world that new knowledge does not seem possible. Um, and, yes. but it's just like the digital tool, uh, again, to me seems like such a, oh, we're doing something completely different and new, but comes with a set, set of constraints that is discomforting to, to some students that they have to give over like what, allowing someone to choose which direction they go in. Um, and even that then creates burdens of, 
extra writing because if you like create a twine essay then you're writing like this super long essay that a user may only interact with certain parts of it or something like that so um, you might not be as expressive in the writing because you don't think people are going to read it as much um, and things like that too so it just brings its own sort of templates to some degree that seem cool in digital culture but may just end up being the five paragraph essay in the end right I think that's really interesting. And I think this is this is kind of the history of composition, the history of writing in terms of genre and forms, right? It's something emerges that's new and surprising and we feel it breaks these sort of molds we feel stuck in or it's just, it's offering us new uh, ways of seeing the world, not just content-wise, but just how it's presented. And that becomes so exciting and so popular that it becomes then the dominant structure that we all adopt and want others to participate in because it's so freeing and but then now that's just the new the new form that we're all sort of conforming to, right? Um, so I don't want to move too quickly towards ChatGPT, but I'm already keep like kind of thinking of lots of connections. Um, what I like though about what we're talking about right now is okay, we have these sort of templates, and they're they're useful. That like a student who has ideas but doesn't really know how to package them or organize them. That can be really frustrating. That, that can be a source of writer's block. Like, I know what I want to say. I don't know how to say it. So for that student, a five paragraph essay model, model like access, um, um, a process. Okay, you're here. Well, here's the next step in the process. Try this, an outline. That can be really freeing. That can be really empowering, right? Um, and so I like that uh, uh, thinking about, okay, there's value in these templates. So long as the student, to Adam's point, kind of already did this ide ideation, right? The kind of brainstorming stuff. Like, here's what I want to share. So they already have some choice in, in, in the process. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about is, you know, writing is always happening within constraints. Like, we always have an audience. We always have certain tools. We always have certain purpose. And those really, that's the situation, right? That's always determining our choices within. Um, and so... So I think that's, I'm wondering what kind of conversations do you all, do we all have with our students when we introduce these templates, right? Um, I know when I, when I use the access form, I, I use the uh, analogy of ba uh, basketball and I tell them, you're not going to really like writing in this style at first. It's going to stretch you and it's going to be kind of uncomfortable. But, but I asked like, how many of you play basketball? And some of them raised their hand. And I asked how many of you have had to run upstairs in basketball practice? And they're like, Ugh. and so we do that. And that's fun. It's like, we kind of, you know, gripe a little bit about the stair running. Um, but then I asked, how, like, what, what's the value of that? Because there's no stairs in basketball. Like, you never have to run upstairs in basketball. There's no, like, I can now do this thing in basketball with the stairs because I ran up them because they don't exist in basketball. I'm like, yeah, that's true. But you gain some muscles, you can do some jumping, you can do some flexing, right? You can make choices in basketball with your body that you couldn't do if you didn't run up those stairs and gain that sort of, you know, that, that, that strength and, and, and agility. And so that's what this axis paragraph is going to do for you, right? In real life writing, you might not see exactly this formula, but if you practice with it, it's going to give you some, a toolkit, right? Some agility and some strength that you can exercise when you need it. And that's kind of the conversation we have around that. Um, so I wonder, I just, are there things that you do with your students to really like, okay, here's the thing that I'm going to ask you to do, but but here's your agency in it, or like here's your source of decision-making in it. 
Uh, one thing that I, I use um, a lot is from, I, I, I stole it from uh, that textbook, the ACI say, and it's this idea of meta commentary uh-huh. where, you know, you, I, I use the test format, which is just another iteration of access, obviously. But, um, you know, if we can get those basics of the test, you know, this that transitional language to help carry your readers through your ideas, providing evidence and explaining that evidence to your, your readers, using meta commentary is a really great way for you to um, develop your writing meaningfully, for you to insert voice, for you to use um ideas and and clarity in ways that are unique to you so i really rely on that idea of meta commentary as this opportunity for you as the writer to really develop your stance and your your voice that feels more true to you it's not this rigid stale test body paragraph structure yeah yeah yeah. right on i think one way I, i challenge that is in an early assignment I have an argumentative literacy narrative. So it's a, it's a blend of like a narrative component of the student's lived experience with a specific, you know, aspect of their, of their literacy, while at the same time integrating Axie styles paragraphs to help support that overarching claim. So it's a way for them to kind of see that maybe the Axie's paragraph doesn't always work in a narrative type paragraph where they're telling, you know, uh, reflecting and, and um, conveying a, a, a memory and th- that their ability to kind of balance between those two different structures and to ask which style of writing or what, what paragraph structure or approach do they want to take and that they can then, you know, use combinations to impact the reader in different ways so i think mm-hmm. and it's, sometimes it's a challenge because i teach the axes like hey here you have an assertion with a, a definite example and some you know analysis and connect it back to your thesis and there's a way for them to bring in their memory into that evidence the x part of axes but at the same time it, it doesn't work as well as them telling a story about how you know how much in describing a scene in their bedroom when their grandma used to read to them every night, you know, from a particular um, selection of text or something. So it's there, it gives them a degree of agency to make those decisions. Totally. And I was just, I was just thinking, uh, I was just having a conversation with Chad and he brought up, we were talking a little bit about this and his, his point was, it makes me wonder like, where my blind spots are when I'm relying on these sort of go-to structures, right? Like, so to your point, Jake, like in this moment in the essay, storytelling is what's really needed, like, like rhetorically, you know, like, like to be effective in sharing the idea, not an axis paragraph. Right. Um, And so it's when we rely on these structures and we sort of, you know, these are the tools we're offering our students, what blind spots are, 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 are we creating or, or are we sort of like, like allowing to persist, right? Like, what are we leaving out? Like what, what is not available to our students because we're missing those other structures, right? Those other kind of uh, opportunities. Um, it's a, a, yeah, it's an interesting question. And I don't do any of the paragraphs at all. Like I don't teach that version yeah. of writing um, in terms of any like acronym, anything. Um, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so 
I mean, maybe my students are missing out, but we just have paragraph free-for-alls. And so we have paragraphs that do very different things yes. right there. They're just doing what they do, um, individually purpose-driven paragraphs. But um, so something like a thesis statement, right, with those like structures or expectations, um, it's jarring to students, but like the suggestion that it like become, it comes like near the beginning of the paper, doesn't necessarily have to be the first paragraph or that it could be spread across the entire paragraph. It doesn't have to be like a sentence or two sentences that come at this particular moment. Um, it's jarring for students, I think. Like that's um, my experience with writing, like when I suggest that this like structure they've been taught before, um, isn't the only way to do something, they sort of like freeze up and shut down. Yeah. And and it's also things like integrating sources, like the go-to source integration. It's like two sentences of like, here's the author and then the place it comes from. And like, this is the author's credentials. And I'm like, that doesn't need to be in your paper. But like every single like quote is set up that way. And I'm like, why are we doing this? But that's like right. how they learn to integrate quotes. And that was like the only option given. Right. And I was like, there's lots of ways to do that um, right. and reasons to like introduce an author and reasons not to. Um, and so it's writing is being taught to students like without any like rationale behind any of it, which is like, right. I think a bigger issue with all these like forms and structures and expectations. We don't like explain why anything is there. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And so, okay. So that's the, that's the reality of the classroom that our students walk into, right? And, and I think, and, and they're savvy, they know that this particular English teacher is gonna want something. And so for me to get what I want out of this class, I gotta deliver that something. Um, if it's paragraph or a quote integration of a form, well, that's what I need to deliver. That's the training I get. I'm gonna try it on the next professor. And if it works, it doesn't work, then I've got to figure out what needs to be happening here. and then. I can, you know, but Shelly, to your point that, you know, we need to be the how and the why this is how, this is why we're doing what we're doing and, and to do it well, here's the house, right? Plural, like here, you can do it this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, right? And so what are you going to choose? We'll choose why, right? And it's a ping pong back between the how and the why, and that that's really, that's a way to really increase student agency and choice in their writing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So how about, <laughs> how does, how do we see chat GPT or generative AI then? Uh, uh, totally different from these template models that do uh, sort of embed bias in terms of like what a teacher is looking for or what's expected of a discipline perspective. Um, um, I, I like, I'm thinking also, Daniel, what you brought it up, like, you know, new knowledges and new forms, like, Really? Like, how often do we really come up with new knowledge? How often do we come up with new form? Isn't what we're always doing a form of pastiche, right? We're just kind of collecting, kind of riffing on what's been done before. I mean, you know, this is right. I read the authors I loved and I looked closely at how they were doing what they were doing. And I incorporate that into my own writing. And now I have a Curry style, a Curry voice, right? Um, but that that came from reading, that came from looking, and came from practicing. Um, so how, how threatening is ChatGPT to all this? How, how just sort of one and the same is ChatGPT to everything we've been talking about? What, 
what are we, what are our thoughts just linking to chat GPT? Yeah, I have a, a few and it kind of um, goes from what Shelly was just say, saying too, um, in terms of like one thing I think that students often find valuable because there's always this big debate of how much reading should be in a writing classroom. But one thing I've always found valuable of that because students will say things like, we're not supposed to do this or that or the other thing. And then I'll just point to, well, we just read this thing last week from this like academic person that is published and they did all those things that you were, were uh, saying. And I think that's interesting because that gets me thinking about like the value of reading versus the value of writing. And then like with chat GPT, like, and I was thinking that, like, with that science fiction uh, story article you sent out, like, the, the, we're so worried right now about what it's going to do to, like, writing and expression, which I'll also sort of connect to in a minute. But um, there's also, like, the value of reading and, like, the value of, like, using that as a space to think about what reading and writing are. And so like chat GPT, like reading those things, it's like reading really anything. And I think that's like thinking about it from that level is important that it's it's overtaking the expressive potentials maybe of writing, um, but like reader agency. And that's why I liked those annotations in that science, like that, that's so cool. Like building that conversation from there. And then I also, it also got me thinking about like, because I always think about this in other contexts, all of the fears of instructors right now of like, what if work's going to be turned in that is ChatGPT written? And I thought of all the panic that happened as we moved to the pandemic with all the instructors saying, well, now my multiple choice exam is going to be cheated on. Yeah. Um, and it's the same sort of, well, maybe like, the reason that's happening is because this is not a meaningful thing. Right. Um, and if students were like, and which in education to some degree, it may just have to be that way because it might just not be always a meaningful thing. But if students really like, they're still reading things that exist in the world. And if they really wanted to express themselves in meaningful ways and context that they find meaningful, they'll write the thing. Um, but in a class, ChatGPT might just be taking over some functions. Um, but that doesn't mean that no one's ever going to write again. Right. It just means contextually that there are moments when that's important. Or like I always say with the multiple choice exam, like you're going to just have to really, really rethink, like maybe multiple choice exams as a genre is dead. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe certain like, but with writing that's harder, especially academic writing, like the essay, like I think the essay is dead is uh, like, I don't think that that it doesn't have any meaning, I don't think, because the essay means so many different things. So that's where it's going to take us to be a little more reflective. Um, but I don't think that students are never going to write anything ever again. If they like, I have students that send me like poetry they're writing for no class all the time. And they're just like, look at my poem. Um, right. And like that is interesting because they want to do that and it has nothing to do with a grade yep yep it makes me think earlier what adam said about the process and i wonder like if i had an assignment next semester in my english 100 class where i really got them into a space where they cared about it I, let's just imagine i did that so we had a cool discussion and everybody has something they want to say and then i said okay as part of your writing process 
you have to use ChatGPT next. You have to use it. And it's whatever it produces is going to be the next thing you turn in. How many of them would hate that step? Like, like how many hate the outline step? You know what I mean? Like, I don't think ChatGPT is this, I'm not thinking of it as this like, oh yeah, everybody's going to use it because it has solved all of our writing problems and it does it so well, right? It's just that human element in using a template is, is always going, there's always going to be a bad fit and there's an alignment problem, right? In what the communication is that's produced and what it is I'm trying to actually say. And the human will take over is my assumption. Does the, I have a question. Does the chat GPT, if I lined up 10 students in class and asked them to all type in the exact same prompt of write me a rhetorical analysis of a letter from a Birmingham jail in the voice of a college freshman, and all 10 of them put in the same query, does the, does the AI generate the exact same essay for all 10 students, or is it a unique Every single time that query is posted, it's a unique response by the by the AI. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's because what it's doing is it's just guessing what the next best word might be, and it's not running on. Uh, it's generative, right? And so it's always kind of making its own little decisions based on how that 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 network works. So it's always a slight. And in fact, Jake, the, uh, with ChatGPT. You can, there's a button at the bottom of what it generates that says read, like redo, like, like generated the same, but different response. And it'll always be slightly different. I think Jake. Go ahead, Jake. Sorry. Yeah, I think so. He turned into jet. Chat GPT is just taking over his. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Jake, Jake will come back in. Um, okay, and I don't want to say too much until he comes back in. Uh, but that's a that's a, that's an interesting thing to think about because part of what I think about with Jake's question is where Chat GPT is right now and where this technology is going next. Right, like it won't be long before I have a profile. Where when I type in the same thing Shelly type, Shelly and I are using this, um, you know, Shelly's profile and her particulars will determine an output that will be different than mine, right? Based on how. So Jake, we were just saying, like, I think these things, these these AIs will become more and more responsive based on our profile and how we kind of dial in little settings. So there's chat GPT right now, and then there's what it will be, you know. So yeah, it's something to think about. But that's interesting to me too, because it goes back to the coded bias idea and linguistic yes. bias and like, yes. what is the average expression? But then like, because then it'll be, well, the next cool thing is you can toggle what you think the average expression is or things like that. But then like, that's going to be, again, students or users or whoever utilizing stereotypes of like, what does a scholar sound like? And like, let's infuse that into what uh, this outputs or, or things like that. Um, that like, I think right now it's probably just at the level of what does the average expression that you're asking me to 
create sound like um but is the next generation like oh like now we just have a smorgasbord of voices but are like what uh uh does that standardize what those voices are in particular ways what would be particularly interesting i don't know if it's like too far-fetched but if the student or if I begin to develop this relationship with the AI to create like, so the AI starts to try to get a sense of what my voice is and my proclivities and the kind of the persona that I've created, then to have the AI generate something that would sound like me. Right. Yes, exactly. And it, it it's already do it like chat GPT will do that for folks like Martin Luther King Jr. Or like Ezra Klein or, you know, uh, Roxane Gay, right? Like, published art, uh, authors whom ChatGPT has included in its training model can reproduce those voices uh, with their ticks and their 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 sort of like, you know, uh, markers, right? That what makes them distinct. And so the notion that it will be able to do that for us as individuals because we've fed it kind of our content is not is not far-fetched. Like that's but I think there's two things to say about that. So one, I would say this sort of like what Daniel was saying, the, the average voice, the, the what ChatGPT assumes is like, okay, just sort of like a neutral tone. That's exactly what our English classes have been doing historically. Like we have, we have created an academic voice and we've imposed structures and processes and practice on our students so that by the end of their training, they've achieved that kind of neutral academic voice. And that's ideological, right? That is that is taking what they've brought and how they would how they would express and it's muting it and it's it's marring it and it's it's shaping it into this we speak this way when we're in this space, right? Um so that that's not something that chat gpt threatens. That's something english has like that defines an english class and an english curriculum. So that's something for us to think about. But the other thing i want to say we can take this in any way we want to. Uh, uh, that documentary, Coded Bias, it starts with this problem of, of a racial bias about face recognition in the algorithm. And at the end of the documentary, it's it's showing that this is a solvable problem and that these, these AI can be more inclusive of, of uh, uh, diverse faces. But then what happens is create the capacity of AI to surveil everybody. Now, now AI can track everybody's face. And so the real question becomes, who's using these tools, who has the power over them, and who's being used by these tools and has no power within them, right? Like that's the bigger question. And I think it's worth thinking about with ChatGPT. So, so let's say the technology gets to the place where every student's voice is, 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 is able to be reproduced by this technology. But then what? Are we going like who has the power? Who will have the power in our classroom when that tool can do that? Will it be the student or will it still be us? Right? Does that make sense? I'm cool with there being a little silence right now. I, I like that 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 kind of lands and we're thinking about it. <laughs> it's just so heavy. It like takes a second to, like process like the do it yeah the possibilities and stuff. It's it's pretty intense. Yeah. I guess part of that question is, 
So let's say ChatGPT or the next version of it, a student can use it. It sounds exactly like them. Will I let them use that tool to write an essay in my class or will I impose templates and rubrics on that expression anyway? So they'll have to change it. They'll have to work in some other, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's a practical example, but there's also a larger thing within that too. Or they'll have to write like in class by hand. Right, exactly. The thought of having to read students' handwriting just makes me shudder. <laughs> no, so I, I'm thinking of that, uh, this idea of the, the shifting power dynamic. And I mean, the role of technology, I mean, to me, has, has always been an attempt to uh, solidify, maintain, or, or shift power in, in some manner. So I, I, I feel like those who will have access, um, who have, you know, interfaced with that technology before, those are the, those are the people who are going to have this quote unquote power. And it'll be the students or the instructors who don't have access or, perhaps interest in this technology that will be, you know, perhaps left behind or uh, to use the term powerless. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just got me, my, got me thinking in that direction. It's, for me, it kind of boils down to access and experience with said technology. It is what determines the power dynamic at play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point, Adam. Mm -hmm. I mean, I already had a weird experience with it um, when I was like having it revised things and then it started like having this like side conversation with me um and so it went from like apologizing to like a conversation but it was like I don't know where it got the tone for that conversation or anything but it was like creepy guy at the coffee shop harassing me conversation like that was the tone and I was like I'm done like I'm not having this conversation and it was it happened so fast and I was like who taught you to like dialogue with someone like this? It was very strange. And I mean, really fast. Like it was like two interactions and then all of a sudden it got really oh. uncomfortable. Dang. Ugh. And I love the way that Shelly talks about it. Who talk, taught you? It's like, is it, it's a it, you know what I mean? It's not a you. It's I know. Like, and so we like are already anthropomorphizing it and like talking to it like it's a thing, like it's another person and stuff. It's a trip. The other thing that trips me out is like, they, they can totally tell, when I take a picture of myself compared to somebody that can use a filter or that can enhance their image, there's a clear distinction of who has like some expertise in image reproduction. I think that's like a, a, a clear, that will also be demonstrated in, you know, the application of this chat GPT in, in writing and stuff, especially just in terms of like the way to interact with it and, at, and set these parameters and to engage with it in such a way to, to, to really get the desired result. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if we wanted to like use this with our classes, that could be an interesting activity of like, here's the rhetorical analysis of Martin Luther King's like letter from Birmingham jail. Everybody go do this on chat, chat GBT, bring it back in, look at all of them together. And it's like, what has been produced? What were the differences that like students put in, um, in terms of like the prompt and what they were asking for that like generated the product? And then even sort of like assessing those products with whatever sort of rubric or grading um, to show students a range of like this sort of like failed the actual prompt, 
right? This is like chat GPTF um, that you just got on your paper. And then like this student like did something else, like whatever it was, um, I don't know, to see that range. Yeah, 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 I like that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, and I remember, I I remember going to a Four C's conference way back in grad school, and one of the one of the panel, like uh, really like prominent keynote speakers, it was all about voice, and it was like, what is voice? And it was this attempt to like through data science, like like pin down what exactly is voice in writing. So is it certain word patterns? Is it certain? And clearly, like this is what's part of this whole. Uh, uh, generative AI, these these um, um, generative pre-trained uh, models, right? That that like they need that kind of uh, um, uh, science behind them to so reproduce what we would say as a human voice. But it strikes me in this conversation that asking what is voice, and like when do we recognize it, and when do we value it, has been something that our our we've been grappling with in our discipline for a really long time, um, and because there's, there's so much that goes into that. Right. And I'm thinking of this because of what you just said, Jake, about the, the filters that we use for just taking pictures of ourselves. Like I can take a picture of myself. And if I, if I put it in a space and people I know see it, they'll probably value it. Like there's Curry doing a thing. Right. And, and whatever, like I recognize that, but if I throw it out in a general space and it doesn't stand up because it's not doing what's now become aesthetic, right. It's become sort of right. And I don't know how to use the technology to do that. The content doesn't matter. The content, like who I am as a person in that space is erased because this larger aesthetic has sort of buried me, right? It's sort of hidden me from view. And so I wonder, like, this is this to, to Adam, to your point, like voice, content, expression, argument, it's paired with the form and the aesthetic and then how that gets picked up by where, where it will be viewed or where it won't be viewed. And so these will be essential tools that our students will need to participate as we hope they will in like democratic processes and, and in practices of freedom and expression, et cetera. Um, even though those tools may filter them or put them into certain structures that not they may not necessarily and naturally uh, sort of be inclined to use. Does that make sense? Yeah, the, this is interesting because, um, uh, which might be interesting reading. I'm trying to look through it, but I, it, I'd have to look again at like for some valuable quotes. But th this idea of voice, I was really thinking about. It. I think it was over either winter break or summer. I read um, because in a in a humble bundle about uh, teaching and writing and stuff, I got a book called Bad Ideas About Writing. Um, and it's, it's a bunch of short chapters, tons of short chapters that are basically like myths that we tell students basically about writing. Um, and one of the chapters is titled, uh, and so every, every chapter is titled by like a myth, basically like something that the author is then going to say, this is dumb. Um, and so one of the chapters is titled writers must develop a strong original voice. Um, and that chapter, it's only like a couple pages, but it really like deconstructs like this idea that voice means anything. Um, and uh, that's interesting. And it talks about like the difficulty of that because because we really want um, 
writing to also be an interface of reading and what the reader inter in infers about the writer's voice is not like the thing that the writer is potentially controlling and all of these other interesting things um, that I think that again goes to a template like voice is a template that we use but like then we tell students well uh, use your voice in this essay and then we also tell them that like you're a different identity depending on whatever context you're in and so what does that do to voice like because then you you're multiple voices or, yes, or exactly. whatever um and so that's that voice itself might be a myth that chat gpt is kind of exposing to us as another just performative element of expectation around writing right i mean i think that goes back to like whose voice though and like what voices have been shut out of academic and professional writing spaces right. um and going back to like linguistic right like white language supremacy all of that stuff um and I mean, how much do we actually value voice um, in terms of like everything we're asking students to do their writing? And I mean, I've had, there's this like one student, I really remember him it's several years ago. And he was like, I don't know, in his forties in like my English 100 level class and talking about how he was like trying to change his voice because like his other like faculty, they were like telling him like he would only like, it was B-level writing because of his voice. And I was like, this, this is like an A paper. And I was like, you hold on to your voice. Like you just take the B's and move on with your life because voice is something that like you can't teach. It's like what I tell my students. I'm like, I, I can't teach you how to like develop a voice, right? Like you develop it on your own. And he had something that was like really, really powerful in his writing. And the fact that he was being told in like every other class to get rid of it. I mean, mm. it was just like, what is it that we actually value? Like we don't value voice. Right. We like to talk about it. We value like a very homogenous voice. Mm -hmm. So, no. yeah. Now I'm at that like, damn, I got to think about this moment. <laughs> We've got like a minute left. Um, this is a really rich, really rich conversation. Um, any any last quick thoughts or questions or? I mean, I think with voice and like chat GPT, the students I worry about are the students who do have a voice and they think their voice like doesn't sound smart enough and like, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things. And so then chat GPT is like, oh, it makes me sound smarter. And it's sort of just like giving themselves entirely over yes. to it um, yes. because their voice has been devalued in a variety of like educational spaces, things like that. Yeah. And that's really insightful. It's it's that it's so true. Like even when I do stuff on the board with student writing, like I'll take their writing and I'll say, what if we move this up? And what if we move this down? And what if I add this little tiny transition between? And they'll say things like, that sounds good, right? And what that what I hear about that is an assumption about what English class writing ought to sound like, right? Because I've manipulated it into a structure. And so when they respond to ChatGPT, that sounds good. They're not assessing because it's saying the way I would say it, it's the content is the way I would shape it, the point that's being made is landing the way I want it to land, it's just that assumption, this is what English class writing sounds like, right? Yeah. You know, Shelly, what you said has me thinking and um, kind of connecting back to this idea of um, 
the need to place filters over photos or, or certain structures or um, like I'm thinking of like TikTok and how there are certain, I think they call them templates. Um, correct me, there's probably a better term for it. But there are certain things you do as a content creator in a certain, use a certain voice or a certain performance in order to get your voice heard or your message heard. And if it's not in that template or that format, then people will swipe right past it. So I wonder about those students who actually have a strong voice and a powerful thing to say, but using something like ChatGPT or using AI will kind of strip that away so that we're getting this filtered, watered down version of them when really what we want is that power, that, that strength of voice that ChatGPT or these other filters seem to remove. Just got me thinking. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I feel like this is one of those conversations that doesn't resolve very well. I think this is one of those conversations that exposes lots of problems and, 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 and issues. And I think it's, it has that value, but, um, and so in the middle of this series, I think it's, it's helpful, but, but I also just want to validate our kind of, cause this is how I'm feeling like shit. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot going on in my mind right now. And, um, we don't need to, we don't need to put a bow on it. I think it's okay that we just continue to kind of process and mull these things over. Um, and so just very fast, I'll just point forward the next two, uh, sessions we're going to think about reading. So it's so far, it's been a lot about writing and producing, but but we want to then just really dive into reading and what is reading and, and the value of reading now that we have these new tools. Um, and we have lots of different ways to read, right? Um, and so um, uh, 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 we'll riff a little bit on uh, Marianne Wolf's uh, Reader Come Home. Just like always, there's no requirement to, to have done that reading because there'll be lots of ways for us to come at it anyway. Um, but we have two sessions coming up uh, uh, on that topic. So I hope that sounds interesting. Cool. Thank you, everybody. I hope you have an awesome day. Thanks. Good to see everybody. Thanks, y'all.